Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. Here now is God's word. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he, gave him, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So here we are, uh, continuing our study through the book of Ephesians. We are now in that practical section where Paul is laying out the implications of what it means uh, to be partakers of this mystery of Christ, this mystery of the gospel that was revealed to Paul. Um, he was given this stewardship to administer uh, the, the mystery of the gospel uh, the mystery of the gospel, of course, as he outlines in chapter 3, verse 6, is that Gentiles are fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. So this idea of Gentile inclusion into the body uh, it is the fulfillment, if you will, of the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 3, that through you or by you or in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Uh, they are blessed by the seed uh, as Paul says in Galatians 3, that the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham when he said that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here you have this mystery of the gospel of one people of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation uh, for whom Israel was a vehicle to bring the Messiah into the world so that these promises could then be uh, distributed. These promises could then be fulfilled uh, in Christ. So we see... Uh, that's the mystery of the gospel. Then in chapter 4, Paul says, therefore, and then he says, because of all these things, I beseech you to walk worthy of this calling. What calling? Well, the calling that you have to be a child of Christ, the calling that you have in Christ, that Paul says earlier, before the foundation of the world, this calling by which you were redeemed by his blood, this calling by which you are sealed by his spirit, this calling by which you are built up together into one new body that is the church built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The application of this is that we are now to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we are called. So we are to walk worthy. It is a, an outflow. 
It is a response to the gospel. Uh, we are not saved by our worthy walk. We are saved to walk worthy, um, as Paul says in uh, chapter 2, verse 10, right? We are saved by grace through faith unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So that worthy walk is walking in the works that God has prepared beforehand that we should follow, that we should walk in them. And in verses 1 through 6, he emphasizes the unity. It is a, the worthy walk is a, is a humble walk and is a unified walk, walking with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then in verses 4 through 6, uh, you almost, it almost feels like this could be an early creed, an early confession, if you will, that there is one body, one spirit, uh, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. So we are unified in this worthy walk because of the unity of our confession, that there's one body of Christ. There's not multiple bodies of Christ. There's one body of Christ. There's multiple instances, if you will, of the body of Christ, as you have churches here and there and everywhere, but it is still one body. It is one faith, one uh, set of doctrine that we are called to, one hope of our calling, one spirit that unites us to Christ, one Lord whom we worship, one baptism which brings us into the body, and one God and Father who is above all, through all, and in all. So that was last time. Now, the thought of this unity continues really in verses 7 through 16, uh, as in many other places where you see uh, passages that speak of spiritual gifting, um, Paul first emphasizes the unity, and then he shows how there is a diversity within this unity. Um, just as there is one God, there are three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You have, you have a diversity within the unity, and the same thing applies to the body of Christ. Though we are called to this uh, faith, though we are part of one body, you see verse 7, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So uh, you see this diversity within the unity. And here this passage really can be summed up as saying that the goal of our sanctification is the building up of the body of Christ. We are being sanctified individually and collectively so that the body is built up so that the body will function properly. That's the whole point, right? You see that uh, conclusion drawn in verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. In other words, everything works together. When the body, when the individual parts of the body are working properly, the body functions as it should. So the whole body uh, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself, the body. And again, the body system is just a, a metaphor for the church. Uh, it grows of itself in love. So the goal of sanctification is the building of the body, and that's the theme. The glory of Christ in the life of the church is the building up of his body, is the building up of the church. Uh, the goal is not for us to go and have a better life. It's not to have your best life now. It is not to you know, go better, faster, farther, further. You know, it's the goal of sanctification is the building up of the body, 
right? Which is why you get a lot of the one another's in scripture, bearing with one another, loving one another. You know, you see that in verse two, uh, bearing with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep unity. All of this is the building up of the body. So uh, we're going to look at this passage in three parts. We're back to a three-part message. Don't worry, you're getting extra in the sermon today. The sermon, I think, has six parts, six points to the sermon. Um, So uh, if you're looking to get home early to watch the volleyball, what time is the volleyball game anyway? You might get home before then. (laughs) I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm only joking because I know I went a little long last week. But actually, when it was timed out, it was only like 44 minutes. I've, I've done 44 minutes before. That's not terribly long. Uh, anyway, uh, three points today. So we're going to see gifts of grace in verses 7 through 10, uh, mature manhood in verses 11 through 14, and then growing into the head, verses 15 and 16. So after exhorting the Ephesians to a worthy walk, a walk that is, uh, a walk in which you bear with one another. Why? Because Christ is bore with, you know, Christ bears with us, uh, bearing with one another in love, uh, walking unified, endeavoring to keep the peace, uh, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Paul now turns uh, his gaze to gifting. You know, as he says here in verse 7, but to each one of us, grace, charis, A gift was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So while we recognize there's one body of Christ, uh, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, there is a diversity of gifts. Again, I mean, we've seen this in other passages. We seem to be hitting all of the spiritual gift passages. Uh, When we go through 1 Peter, eventually we'll hit that spiritual gift passage. But if you remember from 1 Corinthians 12, he says this here. Uh, in verses 4 through 11, uh, that's 2 Corinthians, no wonder that didn't look right, um, 1 Corinthians, <laughs> um, they put these little numbers next to the name of the book so that you know it's first or second. There are diversity of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. Again, you know, you kind of hear that Ephesians 4 talk, right? Diversity. But one spirit, right? There's one spirit, one faith, one Lord. Differences of ministries, same Lord. There are uh, diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. And then he goes on to list a sampling of the spiritual gifts. So again, you've got this one body, one spirit, one Lord, one Father, diversity of gifts. God gives these diversities of gifts in order to build up his body. If every, you know, if you remember 1 Corinthians 12, if, you know, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were a foot, you know, so on and so forth. So this idea of diversity of gifts within the unified body. And he says, Paul here says back in uh, Ephesians 4, 7, to each one of us grace, charis, was given. This is not... Saving grace, because everyone gets the same saving grace who is a believer in Christ. 
This is a diversity of grace in the sense of a gift. The word here for grace is charis, which you get from, you know, that gets brought into the English for charismatic, uh, charisma, the charismata, the gifts. Uh, here you have, uh, uh, this is not a gift or the grace of salvation. This is the grace of gifting. It is a, a gifting to each member of the body to build up the body. And here we see that the gift of grace is given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So, and then Paul here quotes from Psalm 68, 18. Now, there's a little bit of a difference in the way that the psalm is written out and how Paul quotes it. Because the psalm, in Psalm 68, it's, it's, a, it's a victory psalm of the Lord. Um, and when you get to verse um, 18... Here it says, you have ascended on high, you have led captivity captive, you have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. So the psalm itself says, as you lead in this victory procession, you have ascended, you have led captivity captive, and it says you have received gifts among men. When Paul quotes it, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. Now, you may think, well, is that a difference maybe in, like, the Septuagint? I couldn't find a difference like that. I think what Paul is saying here is that the gifts that Christ receives from, you know, then he distributes to the body. So he gets these gifts as part of his victory over death, over the grave, over sin, over Satan, casting Satan out. And then this victorious Messiah King receives these gifts and then distributes them to men, right? According to the measure, according to the, the measurement of Christ's gift. And then you get this interesting little, uh, if you have a New King James, I don't, it, it may be in the ESV as well, is that there's a parenthesis between 9 and 10. So uh, 9 and 10, he's kind of explaining here a little bit. Uh, he's, in a sense, summarizing uh, the life and ministry of Christ where he says, he, is, he quotes from the psalm, and then he can't help but you know, be a teacher of the word. It's like, well, when he ascended, what we first mean here is that he also first descended, right? You know, you, you see this language a lot in the Gospel of John, where John, uh, Jesus there speaks of, of the one who has come down from above, and then he must then go back to where he had come, right? He descends, and here he says, to the lowest part of the earth. You know, you could say the grave, right? You know, you think of that praise song, right? He came from heaven to earth to uh, show his love or grace. And he, from the earth to the grave, from the grave to the sky. You know, you know I lift your name on high. Um, you get this language here. When he's ascended, it says first he must have come down. So he's talking about the life and ministry of Christ. He descended. He came down from heaven, right? It is God incarnate in the flesh. He lived and walked among us. And he did descend to the lowest parts of the earth when he went into the grave. And then, uh, but the one who descended is also the one, as he says here, who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So this Christ who came down from heaven also goes back. It's, the, it's kind of a... Uh, an encapsulation of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you see this language in John 3.13 and John 6.33, John 6.62, uh, even in Ephesians. Um, 
here in a sense when you look at uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. The power that Paul is talking about here, that we uh, know the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, uh, which the same power he worked in Christ. So, you know, when he's praying that prayer for spiritual wisdom, he, he wants us to experience the power that God displayed when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is uh, named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and so on. So this language of the ascension of Christ uh, of course, for Christ to ascend, he had to first descend. He had to first come into this earth. Now, as we're about to see, the church here that Paul is describing as the body, uh, the body of Christ, uh, is an organism, right? We talk about this in Christian theology. There's ways to describe the church. You have the church uh, as an institution, which talks about its organization, its uh, the officers in the church, how the church government should be uh, arranged. But then you also have the church as an organism. You have the church as an organism, a living, breathing body that goes out and grows, right? You have all these metaphors of growth and being built up and all these things here. So here you have this idea of the church as an organism that needs to be built up, that needs to be grown, that needs to be uh, ministered to. Bodies need to grow. They need nourishment, right? Peter will say uh, that you need to feed on the pure milk of the gospel, right? Uh, so on and so forth. You need food. And Christ is going to make sure that his body grows. How does he do that? By giving gifts to men. So that the people who have these gifts can then use these gifts for the building up of the body. And he's going to do so by distributing these gifts out of his own Victory treasure, right? Out of his own riches, the riches of his grace, the riches of his glory, he then distributes to um, men here, as he says. He gave gifts to men. So that's the first point. Now we look at mature manhood in verses 11 through 14, where he says here, and he himself gave, that is Christ, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Oh, it sounds grim at the end there. The, <laughs> the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness. So here you have the idea of being built up to a mature manhood. Right? The gifts are given so that the body can be built up into a mature man, a mature uh, organism, if you will. Now again, we need to be clear. We're talking about the building up of the body. The body, of course, here in this, as I've been pointing out, is the church. The gifts that Christ gives to his church are gifted men, right? So that's what you see here in verse 11. He gave himself 
And he himself, I should say, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. These are the gifts, right? At least in this context. I mean, in other contexts of spiritual gifts, you've got other uh, types of gifting. But in this context, because Paul is arguing about the building up of the body of the church, the gifts are specifically given to the church, and the gifts that are given are gifted men, if you will. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and you can make an argument for pastors and teachers or pastor teachers. <laughs> either, either one. I think the argument is probably better to say pastor teachers than pastors and teachers. So there are some that are, you know, either way. But that's what we see here. These are the gifts that Christ gives to his church. Apostles or apostolos, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. Now, you have here the apostles and the prophets, right? Uh, when Paul uses this, uh, this is technical language, right? Uh, apostles are those who were uh, specifically commissioned by Christ to go forth at the beginning of the, uh, the, the building of the church, at the very beginning in the book of Acts, uh, the 12 disciples, well, the 11 disciples, and then if you want to count Matthias or Paul, however you want to look at that, uh, some may argue that Matthias was the disciples' pick and that Paul was Jesus' pick. Either way, the 12 or 13 uh, disciples become apostles. It's a technical term, uh, though the, the word can be used in a non-technical sense. It just means someone who is sent, a messenger. So if you want to use the way, if you want to use the, the word apostle and say, yeah, I'm an apostle, I'm one who is sent out, fine, but capital A apostle really is referring to the 12 or the 13 uh, here. Very specifically, they are foundational to the church. We saw that chapter 2, verse 20, right? The church is built on a foundation of the apostles, and we'll look in a moment, and the prophets. These are we're not just talking any old apostle. We're not just talking any, I mean, you could say, you know, you want to call yourself a prophet in the sense that you're speaking forth for God out of his word. Fine. I mean, I wouldn't use that title. Uh, but here Paul is speaking specifically of apostles and prophets in a technical sense. These are uh, foundational to the church. And as such, I would argue there are no modern day capital A apostles, capital A prophets, or capital P prophets. Uh, again, like I said, if you want to use those terms in a non-technical sense, I'm not going to say no, but I think you just bring more confusion into the, <laughs> into the picture if you do use them in a non-technical sense. Um, again, as one who speaks forth the word of God, as one who is sent uh, to, to do the work of God, but I would prefer just to keep these in, in their technical sense here. Then you have evangelists. Right there, the word is just euangelistes, uh, uh, one who goes forth, a bringer of good tidings. So the evangel is the good news, and an evangelist is one who brings forth the good news, who brings forth tidings. Again, I would say that this is also probably used in a slightly technical sense, uh, though I wouldn't say, you know, in the same way as apostles and prophets, we certainly have evangelists today. Um, you know, you think of Billy Graham, you think of other people who've gone forth and, you know, uh, they, they pretty much, you know, their gifting, their calling in their mind is to go forth from place to place and to bring the glad tidings of good news. Um, you could think of people like 
George Whitfield back in the day, Wesley back in the day. Um, they are bearers of good tidings. But this word is only used three times in the New Testament, interestingly enough. Here, uh, in Acts 21, verse 8, to speak of Philip the evangelist. And in 2 Timothy 4, 5, where Paul tells Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. In other words, go out, spread the good news, the glad tidings of Jesus Christ. So this is one who goes forth and spreads the gospel. In a sense, you could say, even in, within reform circles, we recognize uh, an evangelist as someone who may be like a church planter, someone who goes forth into an area where there's no church, and they plant a church. They, they gather a group of people together to form the core, and then maybe that person will then go on to another place, and then as they call another man to be the pastor teacher, as we'll look at in a moment. Then in a sense, that's kind of what Paul did, right? Paul did the work of an evangelist as an apostle, he would go from place to place. He would bear the good news. The people would come, and perhaps they would establish a church, and he may stay there uh, for a period of time, depending on how peaceful the situation was. If it was Thessalonica, he was only there for three weeks. If it was Corinth, he was there for a year and a half. If it was Ephesus, he was there for up to three years. Uh, either way, he sits there, he builds this church up, and then he goes on to the next place. And then he goes on to the next place and the next place, you know. And then he comes back and he visits and he says, how are you guys doing? You know, have you, have you built up elders and deacons to, to serve in the church here? So this is one who goes forth and spreads the gospel. A church planter might be a, another way to look at it. And then as I said, uh, pastors and teachers, uh, they seem to be connected here. Uh, because I think if they were to be disconnected, well, then you would put the comma, you would say, you know, he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers. Right? You know, you can kind of draw it out that way. So I think you might be better to connect this into a single ministry of one who is a pastor teacher. And really, it's just a shepherd, right? That's what a pastor is, is a shepherd. That's the word for uh, shepherd, poimane. Um, that, that's the, the a person who shepherds sheep, someone who cares for God's people in the church. Uh, think of John, we just, when we concluded the Gospel of John, what did Jesus say to Peter when he was restoring him to his calling? He says, Peter, if you love me, what are you going to do? Tend my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, right? Be a pastor. <laughs> Guide the sheep. Tend my sheep. I am the great shepherd. I am calling you to be an under-shepherd. And that's what first Peter, and then Peter uh, picks up on that idea in chapter 5 of his letter, where he uh, says there in verses 1 through 3, the elders, elder is just the word for an older person, but it also speaks of a church office, one who is um, uh, called to guide and govern the church. The elders who are among you, I exhort... I, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God. Very important, right? It's not my flock. It's not that shepherd's flock. It's not your church, my church, his church, that church. It's the church of God. Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseer. So Peter here is using 
Both words, the word for elder, presbyteros, and the word for overseer, episkopos, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And then he goes on, when Christ, the chief shepherd, appears. I mean, Peter's just pulling that right out of what Jesus said to him at the end of John's gospel. Tend my sheep. And then Peter's like, all right, fellow elders, we are shepherds of the flock of God that he gave to us. And we're going to give an account to the great shepherd when he returns. So pastors are shepherds who care for God's people in the church. And then teachers is just the word uh, didaskalos. It means one who teaches, one who instructs. God's people, right? In the Great Commission, what does Jesus say to his disciples? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you to do. So teaching, shepherding, that is one calling, if you will. Maybe some are more gifted toward the shepherding part. Some might be more gifted toward the teaching part. But it's, in a sense, you could say it's one ministry. It is the ministry of the, you know, the continuation of a church that may have been planted by an evangelist, right? You bring someone in then who guides these sheep, who lives among the sheep, who teaches the sheep, guards the sheep, tends the sheep, where the evangelist is one who goes from place to place, putting a new church here, and then building up pastor teachers there. Now, so here you've got, in a sense, special offices, the office of apostle and prophet, they're the foundation layers. And then you've got ordinary offices. And the word office just means ministry. It's the Latin word for ministry. Uh, ordinary office of evangelist and pastor teacher, those are the ones who then build on that foundation. Now, verse 12. Now you look at it, other than if you have a cross-reference Bible, there are no footnotes. Well, you have one word, one footnote there in the New King James edifying, building up, just explaining what the word means. This is a controversial verse. You're like, why? There's nothing that tells me that there's like a different reading for it. It's controversial because of the punctuation. <laughs> All right, so I want to say first off, commas, periods, semicolons, colons, quotation marks that are in our English Bibles to help us read and understand what is being said are not inspired. Punctuation is not inspired. When this was written, it was written just in blocks along a line with no spaces. Why? Because paper, it's not like you can go to Office Depot back in the first century and get a ream of paper for 10 bucks, right? No, paper was very expensive, very hard to come by, very pricey. In fact, uh, there's some you know, stories if you study the history of of the transmission of the New Testament, in some cases, you have documents that were reused because paper was so expensive. You're like, okay, who cares about Homer's Iliad? Let's, let's just take, take, flip that over and let's write the Gospel of Matthew on the back of that or something like that, right? You have these things. Paper was so expensive. So what did you do? Well, you tried to maximize the amount of space you could on a scroll or a papyrus. So you didn't put spacings in the lines. You didn't put punctuation it's just letters you know and if you know if you could do this with english if you've strung a whole bunch of letters without spaces and punctuation if you know english you can read that and you can like all right i can make that out a little harder if you're an english reader who's reading greek right you're like oh that could mean that word that could be you know because sometimes 
you know, the letter, the same letter at the end could be the same letter at the beginning. All this to say is punctuation is not inspired. The controversy in verse 12 is over the question, who does the work of ministry? Right? You've got that phrase there, the work of ministry. Now, you may have caught it when I read it. I put a pause after for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry. Now, you're like, why'd you put a pause there? I don't see a comma in my English. Remember, punctuation is not inspired. Your Bible, if you have a new King James, basically if you have anything but a regular King James, if you have anything but a regular King James, it'll say, he's given these gifts, verse 11, of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So, there, you've got the fact that these gifted men, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, are to equip the saints so that the saints do the work of the ministry. That's the majority of report. If you were to read most study Bibles, commentaries, whatever, it is the gifted men who equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Guess where I'm going to go? I'm going to take a minority report view of this. The minority report is that the gifted men do the work of the ministry. And that's the King James, that's how the King James reads uh, the translation of verse 12. Um, it says, this is the King James, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. They put a comma after the perfecting of the saints or the equipping of the saints. And in, that, in fact, perfecting is the better word than equipping. Because that's what the word there means. It means to, um, uh, to complete, which is why I think perfecting is better. Christ gives the church gifted men who equip the saints, who do the work of the ministry, and who edify or build up oikodome, build up the body of Christ. The majority view that it's the saints who do the work of the ministry um, leads this idea that, um, you know, you get this idea of called every member ministry. You may have heard that phrase, every member ministry. It's like everyone's got a job to do in the church, and, and it's just my job, and it's the elders' jobs. Our job is just to be coaches who, who, who you know, spur you guys on, and then we sit back while you guys do the work of the ministry. Uh, not to say that there's not a ministry for every member, Within the body of Christ, Christ has given these gifted men to the church. They do the work of the ministry. In fact, the word there, ministry, is diakonos, diakonia. It just means ministry. Uh, and they edify. Our job is to perfect you. It is to build you up. It is to uh, minister to you so then you can go out into the world and do what Christians do out in the world, which is to act as the body of Christ out in the world. So the result of the work of the gifted men then is seen in verses 13 and 14. This is what, so the, you know, the, the gifts given to the church for the equipping of the saints to do the work of the ministry within the church, to edify the body of Christ, this is the result. Till we all, 
come to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, a complete man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. I can go on to verses 15 and 16, but that's the next point. So the point here is gifted men given to the church, equip the saints, they do the work of the ministry, they edify the body of Christ so that the body grows the way it's supposed to grow. So that the body is not tossed to and fro. So that you're not like a child who just chases after, oh, the next new thing. Oh, oh, look at that. You know, oh, look at that. Oh, sparkly things. Oh, squirrel. You know, you know, you're like my dog when you're out in the walk and, and a rabbit goes by. And you, just, you know, squirrel. Or It's like, no. The gifted men equip the saints so that they are no longer tossed like children, carried around by every wind of doctrine. The idea is like you're on a boat that's just kind of rocking back and forth. And maybe even as I'm saying this, you're maybe getting a little seasick, as I mentioned, back and forth. No, that's the world, right? The world chases after the next new shiny thing, right? Christianity is not meant to be the next new shiny thing. It is a solid bedrock of truth that we build our house on so that it doesn't get blown down when the storms come, right? That's the idea. We need to be mature so that when we see what's going on out in the world, we can call it for what it is. And not be, oh, well, you know, transgenderism, the next new thing. I guess i got to be kind and loving. And so. No, you got to call it out for what it is, right? It's a perversion of God's created order. And we need to call that out, and we need to call that out in the darkness and, and, and say the truth, right? As we'll see in a moment, speak the truth in love, right? We don't just shout the truth to win arguments. We shout the truth in order to let the truth go forth so that people will recognize this. So the result of these gifted men is then forming this body, building up this body, equipping this body so that the body is grows to be a perfect man, a mature man, so that we, in a sense, the idea is that we, the church, individually and collectively, begin to reflect Christ. It's that Christ is built in us. I love uh, how Colossians 1.28 puts it, where Paul here says, him, speaking of Christ, we preach. So he's saying, my ministry is to preach and proclaim Christ, right? I proclaim him, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom. Why? That we may present every man perfect, mature, complete, you might have in some translations, complete in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the goal, and we need to be built up into that. We need to begin to reflect more and more that image. And that's what we see in verses 15 and 16, growing into the head. I, I hear that phrase, and I think of, you know, how babies, when they're born, their heads are enormous, right? And their little bodies, right? And their little heads just kind of wobble back and forth. You've got to wait for the neck to get strong enough and, and the body to get big enough so that 
it can support the head, right? You know, otherwise the head just kind of bobbles. You know, it's like those bobblehead dolls that you have that you put wherever. Uh, you got to grow up into your head, right? <laughs> you know, or you know, when a child, you know, has a growth spurt and their limbs are all over the place, and it's like you know they don't know how long their legs are and they bump into things and trip over things. You got to grow up into the head here. So verses 15 and 16, but speaking the truth in love, the body may grow up into all things or in all things into him who is the head. So growing up into the head who is Christ. From whom? From Christ. The whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So as the gifted men utilize their Christ-given gifts to perfect and build up the body of Christ, the saints then, we are no longer children, but rather we grow up into all things, uh, which is Christ. Again, the church is an organism. I, I, I love the idea of the church growing, feeding on the word of God, feeding on the pure milk, the meat of the gospel, and then growing into this manhood. And this is manifest, as we said, speaking the truth in love. As we were saying you know, earlier, again, we are a society that despises truth, right? What's the catchphrase nowadays? Your truth, my truth, that truth, this truth, the other truth. It's like, what happened to the truth? <laughs> what happened to, this is true, what you're saying doesn't match what is true, therefore, that's false, that's wrong. And you're like, no, no, it's my truth. No, no, you're wrong. No, 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 you just understand, this is my, no, that's wrong, <laughs> that's wrong, you know, you know, but we need to do this with love. Again, remember, it's not to win an argument. You're not out there, say, so you can notch a thing on your belt, says, okay, well, I, you know, I humiliated that person, I, I owned that person, I, I crushed that person in an argument. No, you speak the truth in love, but it's always the truth. Right? Truth is spoken to bring others to the truth. It is to open their eyes because the Spirit works not by my clever arguments. The Spirit works through the truth, through the Word of God. And as you proclaim that Word of God to a dark world, eyes will be opened as the Spirit takes that Word, uses it to bring new birth into that person. You do this in love. You do this loving the person as a person, as a person created in the image of God, not to win an argument, not to put them down, but to love them. And who knows whether your speaking the truth will bring that person into Christ. But we speak the truth in love, not only to the world, but to one another as well. So that we grow up into all things which is the head. Again, the example of Jesus is so crucial here, right? In John 1.14, we are told that he was what? Full of grace and truth, right? We often fall onto one side of that, <laughs> you know, that or the other, right? Grace, 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 and no truth, and then you tolerate all kinds of things, or truth, 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 and no grace, and then you, you become hard-hearted. Think of the church of Ephesus, which, which side of the aisle did they fall on? Truth, you know, in Revelation 2. They were the truth church. We tolerate no error. We tolerate no heresy. And then Jesus writing to them through the apostle John says, you have left your first love. And then the next church, 
uh, not Smyrna, the next one after that, is the compromising church. They were grace, 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 and oh, they loved everybody, but they led in all kinds of heresies because they did not guard the truth. Jesus is the example here. He is full of grace and truth. And as we do this, here we see the whole body joined and knit together. You know, I think of you know, how David in Psalm 139 says, you have, jo- you, know, you have knit me together in my mother's womb. You've joined me together. You know, you get a very kind of almost actively working together, joining the joints and, and bones together and all these things together. Uh, we grow up. That word there is oxano. You think of auxiliate or augment. We are increased. We are grown together. You know, so as... Paul here is using the, uh, the metaphor of a body growing here. Think of back in Ephesians 2 where he talks about a temple being built. Right? Verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 21. In whom, Christ Jesus, the whole building being fitted together grows. So it's almost like an organic building. Grows into a holy temple of the Lord. It's being built now as we speak. And all this is, the goal of Christian living is to conform to Christ. We grow up into him who is uh, the head. Romans 8.29, we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. 2 Peter 3.18, as we, sorry, that should be 2 Corinthians 3.18, as we uh, behold the glory of God, we are being brought from one level of glory to to the next. And when every part does its work in the body, it grows as it ought to grow. I think of uh, Heidelberg, I think it's Lord's Day 21, oops, sorry about that, Lord's Day 21, question uh, 55, which talks about the uh, communion of the saints. Here we see, what do you understand? This is on page 866 of the hymnal. Uh, what do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that believers, one and all, as members, again, body, of the Lord Jesus Christ are partakers with him in all his treasures and gifts. Think of this passage we've just been looking at. That each one then must feel himself bound to use his gifts readily and cheerfully for the advantage and welfare of other members. That's the idea of growing up into the body growing up into the body. It's the communion of the saints. This is all by virtue of our union with Christ. John 15, 5, he is the vine, we are the branches. We grow as we are connected to him. So here you see the glory of Christ in the life of the church and how the body functions out of the power and gifting that Christ himself supplies. He supplies the gifts. He gives the gifts. He gives the power. It is all for him, from him, to him, and through him. I think we should avoid, uh, if you will, the twin pitfalls. I don't want to say errors, but I think they're, they're, they're traps we can fall into. One is every member ministry, which kind of leads to guilt and frustration. If, you're, if you feel like you're not using your gift, if you believe in every member ministry, then, I, then what I could do is I can guilt you guys. Well, you're not doing enough. You're not doing enough in the church. You need to step up your game. 
And then the other side of that is the pitfall is like, well, I'm, I don't feel, I can't be used if I'm not called to quote-unquote vocational ministry. You cannot serve the church. That's also wrong, right? There are many people who serve the church who are not called to vocational ministry, who are not evangelists or pastor teachers or elders or deacons or however. The church is the body of Christ. That's the point Paul is making it here. Christ is building his church. He does so by, uh, he is the head. He is the head that provides the nourishment. He is the one who gives the gifts. And we, the body, then grow into this head as we exercise the gifts that God has given us for the edification of the church. And then the good news is that we all, by God's grace, growing into the head, which is Christ, we are growing into a complete man. That is the goal of all this, as we've said in, uh, I love that passage in Colossians 1.28, uh, that we proclaim Christ so that you may be complete in Christ. That is the idea. We grow into a complete man as the church exercises her gifts, as we love one another, as we walk humbly, as we walk unified. So I'll stop here because I'm right up at time. Uh, next week, Lord willing... Uh, We're going to look at verses 17 through 24, 17 through 24 of chapter 4.